Stone people, you can go ahead and have a seat. Here's where we're going. There's the title slide. It is finally time for a Christmas sermon. I've all been waiting for one, so here we go. Merry Christmas to you all, a couple days early, but I hope to see you again this evening, and then again Friday night. Those will be announced later in the service. But right now, let's just bow our heads together and pray to the Lord of heaven and earth. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercies, which have been abundantly made known to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for him, for the sacrifice that he offered once for all on Calvary's cross, that he might bring us to you, our Father. We pray that men and women and boys and girls in this building and all over the planet today, hearing the gospel, will believe on you, Lord Jesus, that they'll be saved by your worthy work on the cross of Calvary. And now as we open the scriptures, we pray that you will open the eyes of our understanding. Bless us to see wonderful things in your law. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here's how I'm going to kick off this Christmas message. I'm going to ask a question. The question is, what would you say? What is the greatest discovery in all of human history? Well, if you Google that and start looking at articles, some of them are going to take you way back in time, and they might start off with how to use fire was a great discovery. And certainly was. In the history of things, it was really wonderful. People figured out, I can use fire, I can cook, I can warm myself, I can have light from it, I can ward off enemy animals and whatever. Fire was a pretty cool thing. Others say, no, if you go way back in time, it might have been the wheel. Maybe the wheel was one of the greatest discoveries in all of human history. Another one I thought, I really like this answer, said it was how to domesticate and employ the services of dogs. And really, a lot of humans might not have survived a lot of situations had they not had a dog. So maybe it was dogs. If you come forward in time, people say such things as genome editing, RNA sequencing, uh, artificial intelligence. I read this week where a guy said, really, if you're driving a modern car, you have a robot. You're already driving artificial intelligence. If you have one of these and it's connected to you, you're a cyborg and you are artificial intelligence. So anyway, interesting. What is the greatest discovery in all of human history? I will argue, and I think most of you will agree with me, it was the discovery of Jesus in the flesh. It was the discovery of Jesus in the manger. Imagine those shepherds who were led by that heavenly host to go search for the young child in Bethlehem, and they found him, and they worshiped him. Imagine later when one disciple said to another future disciple, we have found the Messiah. Come and see. Greatest discovery ever. Greatest discovery all down through time. Whenever you, whenever someone discovers the Lord Jesus as your God, your Savior, your Lord, greatest discovery ever, every time, every time somebody comes to saving faith. Greatest discovery, God, Jesus Christ in the flesh. Here's a second question to get us going today. It is this, what is the greatest book in all of human history? Now, you know the answer that I'm looking for in that one. That's pretty easy, isn't it? But it depends on who you ask, and it depends on what genre you're in. Like if you say, all right, what's the greatest novel in all of human history? Well, I read where C.S. Lewis said, I read this long ago, where he said it would be Tolstoy's War and Peace. So maybe that's the greatest novel. And then what's the greatest um, book about this, the book about that? But what is the greatest book? 
Well, it is the Bible. Certainly numerically, it's the Bible. The Bible is still by far, no close second, the most selling book ever, ever, ever on the planet. It's at about 5 billion volumes. You want to know what's in number two place? It's um, quotations of Chairman Mao. That's at 1 billion. The only reason it's even at 1 billion is because they made everybody get a copy and they made everybody read it. So there, that's why that one's bigger. But the Bible is all in all out ahead of everybody the, the most read book in the world, the most purchased book in the world, and maybe the most influential book in the world ever. Certainly, uh, the Bible is important from this perspective. It is called the Bible. You know what the Bible means, don't you? It means the book. Like there's lots of books. Go to Amazon and look at them. Then there's the book. And the Bible is the book. It is a divine book. It is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. It is God communicating His will and His purposes and His wisdom to us, to humans. It is the book. You want that book in your life. It is the greatest book in human history. So here's where this is going. The greatest book is written to help you make the greatest discovery. That's why God put it on the planet, so that you would interact with what's in that book and you would make the biggest discovery on the planet, the greatest discovery on the planet, you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Here's where we're going this morning, Friday night and next Sunday morning. Let me give you the three sermons. Here are the three titles. First, today, prophecies about Jesus' incarnation. Friday night, the setting for Jesus' incarnation. And next Sunday morning, the meaning of Jesus' incarnation. So three Christmas messages, this is the first one, prophecies about Jesus' incarnation. They are there to help you and me make the greatest discovery. So as I said, the Bible is the book. It's a divine book. In it, God is speaking, and God is omniscient. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end, so he, he surpasses time. But he also knows all thing and he, things, and he is the all-wise God. So it shouldn't surprise us that in the Bible, there are predictive prophecies because God knows what's coming. So there are various places in the Bible where he tells humans, here's what's coming. And one of the most important things he tells us, and he tells us repeatedly in the Old Testament, is Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. God in the flesh is coming. That's the Old Testament. What's the New Testament? He came. He spoke. Here's what he said. Here's what he teaches. But there are prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus' incarnation, and that's what we're looking at today. You might remember, if you've read the New Testament a little bit, that after Jesus rose from the dead, after he, when he's appearing to people, he appeared to two, but they didn't know who he was right away. He concealed his identity. He appeared to two who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And, and as the conversation went on, he opened up Old Testament scriptures to them and showed them, this is about me, and that is about me, and that is about me, and that is about me. And the passages we're going to look at today in the Old Testament that prophesy the coming of the Lord Jesus would all be very good candidates for ones that Jesus pointed to, opened up for them on the road of, of, to Emmaus on that day. So where should we start? It's interesting, someone from our church who's very ill right now, in fact, but we keep texting, and he texted me yesterday and said, uh, where's the first prophecy of the Lord Jesus in the Bible? And I said, funny, you should ask. I'm preaching on that tomorrow. So we're starting there. Where is it? Which, which book and which chapter first foretells the coming of the Lord Jesus? What would you say, Cornerstone people? Genesis. Yeah, Genesis chapter 
Very good class. All right, so that's where we're going. You remember in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth and all things. He made humans and he put us on the earth. And everything on the earth was a yes, yes you may, yes you may, yes you may. There was one no. The only no was that one tree, no. Well, like a wet paint don't touch sign, we were drawn to the no. We went to the no. We touched the no. We sinned against God. We rebelled against him. Because of that, we fell. When they fell, the whole race fell. We're all born fallen and dead in our trespasses and sins because we fell with our first father, Adam. Adam. But on that occasion, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, and God is saying, here are the results of what you've now done, he gives us this great verse. It's Genesis 3, 16. And I'll read it for you, and you follow, please. He says to the serpent, who is, whose mouth is used by Satan, he says to the serpent who tempted our first parents, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, he's not just talking about women won't like snakes, all right? He's talking to Satan, and he's talking about a particular woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, that's not little snakes, that's all who rebel against God with Satan. Those are his offspring. All who follow him and his rejection of the God of the universe as their God. Uh, Between your offspring, those who reject Christ, and the woman's offspring. We'll see who those are in a minute. Now notice, we're talking about offspring, offspring, offspring. Now it becomes specific and singular. He, so now we find out, we're talking about one offspring. Not everybody who's ever come from Eve and all of her progeny, but rather, there's one in mind here. He shall bruise your head, devil, and you shall bruise his heel. So the heel bruising was when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and the head bruising was when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And this is the first prophecy in the Bible of the coming of the Lord Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. He is the offspring of the woman. Right after history's absolutely worst event, after our fall, comes the Bible's first predictive prophecy of Jesus Christ. It's in the greatest book at the very start so that we might make the greatest discovery and believe on the Lord Jesus and follow him. So what do we learn about him in the Genesis passage? Well, there are two things I'll point out to us. One, he will be born of a woman. Isn't that interesting? The one who's going to deal with the devil, the one who's going to deal a blow, a serious blow, a head wound to the devil, he'll come as a human. He'll be born of a woman. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He was born of the Virgin Mary and born to do something. What was he born to do? That's the second thing we'll notice from this passage. And he would deliver a fatal blow, a head wound to the devil. And he did. On Calvary's cross, he defeated the death, Satan. He defeated death. He defeated the devil. So in the greatest book, the greatest revelation given, Jesus Christ, we are told, will be born of a woman, and he will be born to defeat the devil. Here's my plea to you. Let Jesus Christ defeat the devil in your life. There is a devil. He hates God and he hates you. The Bible tells us he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Not a purring kitty sitting on your lap, a roaring lion teeth and claws, wants to devour. 
In the Bible, Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked for you. He desired to sift you like wheat, like wheat where you separate things. He wants to separate you from your faith. But I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. And when you have returned to me, tell your brethren. So there's a busy devil. He wants to destroy you. He wants to sift you like wheat to keep you away from God, to keep you away from faith, to keep you away from Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ came to deliver a fatal blow to that devil. Let him defeat the devil in your life. Let him be your God and your Savior. So that's the Bible's first clear prophecy that points to Jesus Christ. Now we're going to skip over a bunch of them, but we're going to land in Genesis chapter 22. And now it's 2000 B.C. Notice I didn't say what year it was when we were in Genesis 3. That's a hotly debated issue. How old is the earth? And where I tend, I'm a young earth guy, by the way, but I still didn't say a number. But now we're in 2000 B.C., and we're with Abraham. And here's what God says to Abraham, and this is about the Lord Jesus. He says, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who is that offspring? Well, the New Testament doesn't leave us guessing. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Jesus Christ. So when God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars of the heaven. I'm going to make your offspring like the, sea, the sand on the seashore. He meant all those who will be in Jesus Christ. All who are believers like you, Abraham. All who follow in the footsteps of the faith of their father, Abraham, are the true offspring of Abraham. But it's because they're in Christ, the one offspring. He does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from, go back to the verse, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, please. What do we learn from it? One, he's going to save a lot of people. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross just to save a few. Some people whittled down the number of the elect till it's such a small number, you marvel Jesus would even come to save them. But no, the Bible says the number of those who follow the Lord Jesus is going to be like the stars of heaven and like the sand on the seashore. So he came to save a lot of people. He came to save every one of you. He came to save everyone on the planet, if they will, turn to him. Also, he's going to save them in or from all nations. All nations will be blessed in him. All nations. It doesn't say just Israeli people, just Jewish people. No, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, what nationality, what tribe. The one born on Christmas Day was born to save a lot of people, and he was born to save them from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue on the planet. He is not a respecter of nationalities. He is not a respecter of ethnicities. And a third thing, it says, when he saves them, they are blessed. 
they are blessed. Let me read the text again for you. It says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you want to know how to be blessed? Do you want to know how how to have a good life? Do you want to know how to have things be well with you and with your soul? It's found in Jesus Christ. It's in Him that all His followers are blessed. Let Him bless you. Let Him save you. Let Him call you. Let him be your Lord, the Savior born on Christmas Day. So that's the second prophecy we're looking at. Now we're on to a third, and it's in the fourth book of the Old Testament. It's the book of Numbers. And now we've moved up to the 1400s B.C. And this is an interesting story, and it's hard to track, so I'm going to put the names up and talk about them for a minute. This is about Balaam, who was a fortune teller, and this is about Balak, who was a pagan king. Speaking of a fortune teller, while I was driving here this morning... I got stopped at a light behind a car, and I photographed it. Now I'm looking at it, and here's what it says. Psychic readings. And there's a number, and then it says, sees all, tells all, call for one free question. That was Balaam in his day. People believed that he could actually tell the future, and people believed that he could place a curse on their enemies. So they would pay him money, just like it is with soothsayers today, just like it is with fortune tellers today. They would pay him money so he could tell them what's going to happen. They would pay him money so he would put a curse on their enemies. So there was this king named Balak. It gets confusing. Balaam, Balak, Balaam, Balak. There was this king named Balak. He was a pagan king in the 1400s BC. And he was, he was doing what all kings do. He was watching the other kingdoms Like, who's going to try and get me? Uh Uh-oh, look at those Israeli people. And he's worried about them. I wonder if they're going to come and attack me. I wonder if they're going to come and take my land. I wonder if they're going to come and we'll be subjugated to them. And so he went to the prophet, the fortune teller, the soothsayer, Balaam, and said, I'll pay you good money, man. Tell me what's going to happen with them. And if they're coming to get me, curse them for me. Well, Balaam thought, this is a good gig. I'm working for a king. King's got cash. I can make a bundle right here. And he really wanted to say what the king wanted to hear because he was a prophet for hire. He was not a man of God. But it's interesting, God steps in and takes control of his mouth and won't let him curse Israel and won't let him say what he wanted to say. So, all right, that's enough backstory. Let's pick it up now because we're going to see a prophecy of the Lord Jesus in this. Numbers 24, 3 and 4. First, he gives his calling card. When I was a kid, there was a show I religiously watched. It was a cowboy show. It, it had, the, uh, had the, the theme to it, have gun, will travel. And that was the guy's calling card, have gun, will travel. Balaam had a calling card. Here it is. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. The oracle of the man whose eye is opened. This is what's on the back of his van. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. This was his shtick. This is who he told people he was. This is what he told people he could do. And Balak played right into it and said, all right, I'll pay you good money. Tell me about these Israel people and put a curse on them if I'm in trouble. Try as he could. He tried three times to put a curse on them. He tried three times to pronounce evil against them, and and three times God stopped his mouth, and then God put these words in his mouth. 
This might be the only time in human history when an oracle, when a soothsayer told the truth. And here it is, Numbers 24, 17. He says, I see him. All right, you're worried about a king? You're worried about the Israeli king? All right, I see him. But not now. So you can still pay me. Because it's good news. He's not going to get you now. But I see him. I see a king coming from that nation, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's not coming up anytime soon, Balak. You don't need to be worried. But I see him, the one you're asking about. I behold him, but he's not now and he's not near. Let me tell you what he's like. A star. Now, that doesn't mean like Blake Shelton's star. That doesn't mean like Brad Pitt star, all right? That's not a movie star. It's not a country western star. A star is a sign of royalty in that era. He's saying, I see a king. I see a star, like the star of David. I see a star. A star shall come out of Jacob, out of those Israeli people, out of one of their tribes. And a scepter, you know what a scepter is. It's like a fancy baton that a king holds to make him look superhuman in front of all the little peons. So I see, I see a king, a star, and I see one holding a scepter, and he will rise out of Israel. Now, Bible scholars are agreed, and I'm not going to take the time to go into it because I want to get to other passages, but Bible scholars are agree that star, that scepter, that king is the Lord Jesus. What Balak heard was, oh, there's a king coming, and he's going to get your people. He's not now. He's a little farther off, but he's coming And that king was the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice two things from this whole interaction. Number one, Jesus Christ was born to be king. He's a star. He's a scepter. He's a king. He's actually, he has three offices. Traditionally, we say he's prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he declares to us the truth of God and the will of God. As priest, he offers himself and he intercedes for us. He offers himself as a sacrifice in our behalf. And as king, he subdues our wills. He rules over us for our good. He's a good king and a righteous king. And he stops our adversary from having victory, ultimate victory over us. This is Jesus Christ as king. He was born to be king. When you turn to Jesus Christ, when you receive Jesus Christ, you receive a king. You receive him to be your sovereign your Lord, your master, the one who is over you in your life. You bow the knee and confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He comes to be king, and he doesn't come into your life unless you bow. And he doesn't become your savior unless you allow him to become your king. He was born to be king, your king. And we also see from this prophecy of Balaam, the fortune teller, he will bring an end to all other kingdoms. He's a star out of Jacob. He's a scepter that shall rise out of Israel. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There will come a day when there won't be any more China and there won't be any more Russia. And do you mind me saying there won't be any more United States? There will only be the kingdom of God. And the people who follow the Lord Jesus will be in the kingdom, and the people who reject him will not be in the kingdom. There's coming a day when there will be one united kingdom. It's all united together under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he'll bring an end to all other kingdoms. Better be in his kingdom. Better believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Better bow the knee 
and allow him to move in with his scepter and his star and be your sovereign, your savior, your Lord. Better say to him, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Better say to him, Lord, give me grace to obey your word. I fail, I'm weak. You forgive, thank you, but give me grace that I may obey because you're my master, you are my Lord. So that's, that's the next one we see. That's the prophecy we see from the 1400s in Numbers chapter 24. Now one of the favorites. Let's go up to 700 B.C. It's the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. And we read in Isaiah 7:14 these words. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Oh, that's good, a sign. It's like you're driving and you're hungry. And there's a sign, Burger King, that way, 0.4 miles. You go, oh, there's a sign. It's telling you something's over there. It's pointing to something over there. There's Burger King activity over there. And God gives people signs, and the signs point to something else. There's messianic activity over there. So he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Well, what's the sign? Here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive wow, I'd like to find that sign on the planet. Let's see, which virgin has ever conceived? Well, I think there's only one in human history. It was the Virgin Mary. So it's pretty easy to find which one Isaiah's talking about here. You don't have to search the whole planet. You don't have to search everybody's genealogies. The Lord's given us a sign. It's that one time that the virgin conceived and bore a son. And let me tell you another thing about him so you can make sure you got the right one. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now, I know they called his name Jesus. They also called him Savior. They also called him the door. They called him a lot of things. But they also called him, this is God with us. And, and they will say of him, the one who was born of a virgin, find that one in human history, and sure enough, they're saying of him, he is God with us. He is God in the flesh. The baby in the manger was God and humanity wed into one. The virgin shall conceive. The virgin, the Hebrew word is alma. It means a young maiden, unmarried, hence a virgin, in a couple hundred years B.C., they translated that Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And there they translated it with the Greek word parthenos, which clearly means virgin. They understood it to mean not just young maiden, but a virgin. And sure enough, when we get to the New Testament, we read about this virgin birth. This is how the New Testament authors understood it. Let's look, let's peek ahead at Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Came together, you know what that means. That's euphemism for the marriage thing, right? Before that, she was found to be with child. How'd that happen? From the Holy Spirit. The power of the Almighty overpowered her. The Holy Spirit came upon her and produced in her a child, an infant without the marriage thing. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. To Joseph, it is said, Matthew 1, 21 and 22, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
I never received any word from God when any of our sons were born. We had four sons, no daughters. He never told me anything. This one will do that, or the other one will do the other. But what if he had said to you or me when your son was born, and he's going to save your people from their sins? You would have been like, oh. You'd ponder the meaning of that. He will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And now Matthew adds parenthetically, which means God with us. So in Isaiah's day, they were told, 700 B.C., they were told, yep, there's one coming. He's going to, here's how you can find him. He'll be the only virgin birth in all of human history, and the one he gives birth to will be the Messiah. He will be God in human flesh, and the New Testament authors understood that to mean the Lord Jesus was just that. So let me give you three things we get from this passage about Jesus. One, he'll be born of a virgin. Again, I just want to say, does that help you to identify of whom the author speaks? He'll be born of a virgin. Two, he'll save his people from their sins. Does that help you identify who on the planet, who is talked about on the planet, who's in a book on the planet who claims, I can save my people from their sins? I'm not aware of anybody else except maybe somebody who isn't mentally sound. If you turn to him, he will save you from your sins. Your sins are getting you in trouble. You need saving. Your sins are getting you in trouble with a holy God. You need a Savior. He will save you from your sins if you'll turn to Him. And the third thing we learn from this is He'll be God with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and dot, 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 verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God. He was God. Paul writes in Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's God, and he's Savior. He'll be God with us. Look for the one who was born of a virgin. Look for the one who says, I save everybody from their sins. Look for a one who everybody said, that's God with us, and he agreed and received their worship. And that's the one you need to cast your, cast your lot with. That's the one you need to call upon. Leaving Isaiah 7, let's go a few chapters later to Isaiah 11 to another prophecy of Jesus. This one is super cool. They're all amazing. This one's super amazing. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. All right, let's explain that a little bit. Who was Jesse? Jesse was King David's father. That was back in the 1000s, but we're now down in the 700s. So that was 3,000 years ago, Jesse. And Jesse was David's father. Well, David was a king, but his kingdom has been knocked down and knocked down and chopped down. It's barely a stump in Isaiah's time. The, the power of the Davidic kingdom has been ground down by oppressors down to a stump. It's barely alive. That's what Isaiah is talking about. But he says, there will come forth a shoot. You know that almost dead-looking stump? A little shoot's going to come up out of it. That's your Savior. That's the Lord Jesus. A little shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, the father of David. 
and, to put it in slightly different terms, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So that's going to grow enough to really bear fruit. And, here's more we know about him, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there's this shoot from the stump. There's this branch that will bear fruit. He's going to have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that is, that is the Lord Jesus. And we read more, Isaiah 11, verses 3 and 4, the next couple of verses. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It's very important that you understand that. What does Jesus Christ delight in when he looks at you and sees you fear the Lord? He delights in that. When he looks at you and you're a person who takes God seriously, you're not messing with God, you're not stiff-arming God, but you fear the Lord. You have a reverence and an awe for God as God. He'll delight in that. He'll love it when he sees that. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then it turns dark and cloudy, and there's thunder and there's lightning, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Anybody think he handles Messiah? About a week and a half ago, Debbie watched, what is it, two and a half hours, dear, presentation of Handel's Messiah from a group in Australia. It was amazing. We just couldn't turn it off. Watch the whole thing. Amazing. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wickedness, the wicked. He's not only the loving Savior, he's also a faithful judge. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 11, 3 and 4. Let's jump down to Isaiah 11, 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Is God only concerned about animals? No, He is, but He's concerned about people. You have people in your life who are wolf-like. They're going to stop it because you're all going to be in the kingdom, and you're all going to be in heaven, and everybody will treat everybody right, and everybody will get along together, and nobody will abuse or oppress anybody else. He's given us a little foretaste of heaven. It'll be the wolf dwelling with the lamb. It'll be the leopard lying down with the young goat. So what do we learn from the Isaiah passage? A number of things. Here's five of them. One, he will have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He'll be exceedingly wise. He'll rule in righteousness and faithfulness. He'll bring judgment, and he'll bring peace, the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat. All right, you're hanging in there. I have just couple more passages. A few more. All right. The book gives us these so that we might read from the greatest book and make the greatest discovery. And here Jeremiah chimes in, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. There's that kind of terminology again, same as Isaiah used. He'll be a branch, but a righteous branch. What will he do? And he shall reign as king 
and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Finally, there's a day coming when the planet will be all justice and all righteousness. No iniquity. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now notice, it's not the name by which he will be called as the righteous Lord. No, the name he will be called as the Lord is our righteousness. Oh, this is something we haven't seen in the prior prophecies. When he comes, he will come and do a thing that will enable people to find the righteousness of the Lord as their own righteousness. What is that? That's Romans chapter 5. That's imputation where my sins are placed on Christ and he bears them in his own body on the tree and his righteousness is reckoned to me and God sees me and him as righteous. He is the Lord our righteousness. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus, the Father looks at you and says, holy, righteous, unblameable, unreprovable in my sight. And we say, oh, it's the Lord. He's my righteousness. It's not me. It's him. That's what, that's what he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. What do we see of him from this passage? Well, he'll be from the lineage of David, so look for that. He'll be a wise king, so look for that. But he'll be the Lord, our righteousness. Either you have your own righteousness, which isn't righteousness, or you have his righteousness, which is all righteousness. You get his righteousness by turning and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll be the Lord, our righteousness. Now we're going to leave Isaiah and come down to Micah. Micah is about 700 years before Jesus was born. And in Micah 5, we find out where he'll be born. So look for the one who was born virgin. Look for the one who says he can save you from your sins. Look for the one who people said of him, he's God with us, he's Emmanuel. Look for the one who's born where, where Micah's gonna tell us. So Micah, Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now let's just stop. What was Bethlehem? It was not Las Vegas. It was not New York City. It was not LA. It was not Chicago. I told you I was born in Silver Run. It was not a Silver Run. And none of you ever heard of Silver Run. Bethlehem was a little place where shepherds who were despised by the, by the Greeks and the Romans, it was a little place where they would water their sheep. It's a little, little hick town. Like, have you driven through West Virginia and seen some little run downtown? It was that. Can you imagine a more unlikely place for God to say, hmm, when I send God in the flesh, when I send my Savior, I'm going to send them through this little hick town in West Virginia. No offense if any of you were born in the, You know what they are, right? All right. Don't get mad at me. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And now notice this whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Wait a minute, I thought he was going to be born 2,000 years ago. Yeah, he came in human flesh 2,000 years ago, but when he did, he was already from ancient days. His coming was already from of old. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. What will he do for me if I believe on him? He will shepherd you. His rod and his staff will comfort you. He'll protect you from wolves that would destroy you. He'll lead you to green pastures. He'll lead you to still waters. He'll make your life good. 
He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. What will it do for me if I believe on the Lord Jesus? You'll be secure. Secure in the will of God. Secure in the love of God. Secure in the salvation of the Lord Jesus. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, all peoples, not just Israel. And he shall be their peace. Let me summarize and review that for you. Here are these six points. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be the ruler in Israel. He is eternal. He'll shepherd his people. He'll be great in all the earth. And he will bring peace. So prophecies about Jesus' incarnation. And then on Friday night, I remind you, we're looking at the setting for Jesus' incarnation. And next Sunday, the meaning of Jesus' incarnation. Take me back to the title slide, please, slide person. So what are we looking at? We're looking at the book. The book which is given to lead you to make the greatest discovery. What's the greatest discovery? It's God in the flesh, Savior, Emmanuel, who can save you from your sins and give you everlasting life. So there's nothing else more important in your life than that. Nothing. It doesn't matter. Husband, wife, kids, they don't compare. They're wonderful. They're important. They don't matter. United States, China, Russia, doesn't matter. There's nothing that compares to that. Where you're going shopping tomorrow, doesn't matter. What you have to do tomorrow doesn't matter. How much money you have doesn't matter. What car you drive doesn't matter. Who you're in love with doesn't matter. What matters? It matters that the greatest book would lead you to the greatest discovery, that you would discover Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. He will bring you peace. Bow with me and let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us to this season of the year in which we remember the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And thank you for giving us scriptures that foretold him and that pointed to him. Help us, help every one of us in this room to be true followers, to be real believers, to be among that number who call upon the name of the Lord. And so, find everlasting life. Father, we pray right now that you would send the Holy Spirit into hearts in this place, that people would be turning to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, be my King. Lord Jesus, be my God. Be my Savior. I call upon your name. Save me. Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.